Thank you very much, Nick. Um, when you read Paul's letters, you don't get shortchanged. There, I mean, it's packed in there, isn't it? So um, thank you very much, Nick, for that. So last week, uh, we started uh, looking at Ephesians, and particularly our identity in Christ. That's the, that's the theme for this coming term. And last week, I think probably a lot of us weren't here. The men were, were drowning themselves somewhere, and, and a few of us were away. But Graham uh, started us off with the first 14 verses. And we've also read those this morning, and you'll see why as I, as I begin to talk. And reading Ephesians 1, it can either be a big slog... Or it can be something of an exhilarating ride. Paul is taking a broad sweep, looking at the kingdom and the purposes of God and our place in it. And this great salvation is the great great salvation story for the whole earth that was planned since the beginning of time. And that was in that first part that Nick read to us, up until verse verse 14. So, we need to look at some context here. We're going to look at several contexts, actually. And Paul is writing this whilst he's in prison. He's awaiting trial. And you can imagine him, this this go-getting action man, is now limited and his mind and his heart and his spirit is exploring all that he wants to communicate to all the churches in the region. And in this letter, he's reminding the Ephesians of their true context, of the reality of God's kingdom, the context that they cannot see. Their immediate context, the Ephesian people, is the one that they can see and feel and hear and touch. And it's fraught with difficulties. Christians are being persecuted, arrested and even killed for their faith. And life is tougher than tough. And this is the people, not only in Ephesus, they, most scholars believe that this was a letter that was meant to be passed from church to church. But it was really the same story in every church. Life was tough for the Christians in the first century. Um, I had the, the good fortune to be in Rome just before Easter and a reminders of the power of the Roman Empire are everywhere. Um, You have the Colosseum, even though it was built slightly later than Paul's time. It's a huge reminder of the brutal and violent spectacles that were laid on by the Romans for entertainment, some including the death of Christians. And we went to the area where Paul was supposed to have been living when he was under house arrest. And it made the power of Rome very, very real. This was the empire that was ruling Ephesus. This was the empire that was ruling the whole region as Paul wrote his letter. 
So this was the Ephesians' immediate context, a tough place to be living. But Paul, in those first verses of the letter, reminds them of their bigger context, their real context, of the great God narrative, the God story that they are part of, their identity as adopted sons of God. If you weren't here last Sunday, listen to Graham's talk on the first 14 verses. They set the scene for the whole letter. And Tom Wright, the theologian, describes Ephesians 1 as a breathtaking view of the entire landscape. We can, as we read it, it can seem a little bit overwhelming. It's wonderful, you know, all this talk about uh, redemption and, and we are now sons and all of this, all these amazing words. It can seem wonderful, but at the same time, a bit removed from our lives. And what we see in as we get halfway through Ephesians 1, is that Paul tries to pull the two things together. The lives of the Ephesians, he wants to pull them into God's salvation story. And that's what he wants to do with us. God wants to help us realise that our real context is in God's purposes and in his story. And the prayer of Paul that we're looking at today is essentially a request that the promises of Ephesians 3 to 14 will be found in the lives of the Ephesian Christians. So that was my introduction. Um, but what we're going to do now is look at some of the prayer that Paul prays and we're going to pause we're going to pause and think about it in our own lives. So in the prayer, this is what Paul prays, that the Ephesians will have the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know Jesus better, and that they will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to know the hope to which they're called, to know the inheritance of God, and to know his incomparable great power. The very first thing that Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians is to have wisdom and revelation. And what do they need this wisdom and revelation for? To know Jesus better. We've had this sweeping picture of the story of God, God's salvation. And yet Paul's first important prayer is four words. To know Jesus better. He brings us right back to the heart of the story. A God who desires personal relationship with us. A God who desires our friendship our trust, our love, a God who longs to know us and to make himself known to us. 
And I believe that all true prayer is, first of all, initiated by God. And so Paul's prayer is an echo of what is in God's heart. What does God want for us first and foremost? What is God's heart beating for? It's for us to know him better. He asks God the Father to give the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know Jesus better. And and, um, Dave mentioned this last week. He asks God the Father to give the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know Jesus together better. All three members of the Trinity are working together with one desire, that we might know Jesus better. And this is Paul's prayer, and this is God's heart for you and for me today. Simply to know Jesus. So simple, so profound, to know God deeply and intimately. And what we're going to do is just pause for a moment or two. And you might like to close your eyes. And what I'd like us to do in just this moment is to reflect on your relationship with Jesus. Here and now. What is that relationship like today? Not how we would like it to be. Not how it was yesterday. But what what does it look like today? Your relationship with Jesus. And you might like to pray in your heart the words that Paul used, Father, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'd like to know Jesus better. I'd like to know Jesus better. In the next part of the prayer, Paul focuses on hope. And this is what he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may the hope may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those who believe paul prays that the ephesians might have hope which comes about from knowing what they are called to their identity hope knowing that they are sons, they are redeemed, they are forgiven, and so on. Their place in God's salvation story. There's a wonderful verse in Romans 4 where Paul talks about Abraham. And you'll remember the story of Abraham. He was called to be 
the father of nations, and his wife Sarah was barren. And so the question was, how, how can this happen? How can this happen? And in Romans 4 it says this, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Abraham is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. God calls into being the things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. Walter Brueggemann, um, and now he was introduced to us by Karen Case Green back last autumn, is a theologian and a bit of a prophet. And he reminds us that the Bible, and indeed history, is full of what he calls the verification of the promises of God, actually seeing the promises of God fulfilled. And what sometimes is so helpful is looking at what has already happened, both in our lives and in the Bible, and in other people's lives, and that gives us hope that things can change. This is what Walter Brueggemann writes. It turns out that the world teems with verification concerning babies from the barren ones, lives that have surged in the midst of death, hurts that have been healed, estrangements that have been reconciled, enslavements that have turned to freedom. All around us, in particular, concrete and specific for people like us. And I particularly love that phrase, lives that have surged in the midst of death. That is what God wants for us. When all seems lost, God brings hope of new life, new growth, new beginnings, hope of change and hope of transformation. And we're going to pause a second time now. I wonder if there is any situation where you have lost hope. Let's just think for a moment and bring that situation before God. Remind him of it. And we can pray simply. Lord, rekindle my hope. Please call into being the things 
that are not. The last prayer that uh, Paul prays is he talks about the incomparable great power for those who believe. That power is the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And that's what we're going to look at now about God's power and how that is available to us. So remember that Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians. He was probably thinking of the city of Ephesus as he wrote. It was a large, wealthy Roman city in present-day Turkey that showcased the might and power of the Roman Empire. It was a huge centre of trade and commerce. It was a place of religious power with the great temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. And its power was arrayed against those wanting to live out the Christian life. I think you'd feel pretty small as a Christian in this city. And for some of you, that's how you might feel living out your faith in this country. But Paul reminds them that God's power is so much bigger. It's a power that can resist the pressures and the powers of the world. And integral to this knowing Jesus better, having enlightened hearts, and finally being filled with and transformed by the very life of God. This incomparably great power is the same power and energy when God raised Jesus from the dead. And I was thinking about this, that, and I was thinking about the opposite of um, God's power. And the opposite, I think, of God's creative power is destructive power. And, you know, it's not difficult to destroy something or somebody. A child can crush a fly. A child can hurt another child. One person violates another. An extremist opens fire on those he hates. A jet drops bombs on a city. It's not hard to destroy something. But to give life to something, that's another thing altogether. We've been hearing about giving these street children life on the streets of Kenya. Their lives have, uh, have been destroyed and yet the life of God and, and the obedience to a call has given them new life again. This is the power of God. This is the power to bring life where there is no life, to bring hope where there is despair, to transform us 
and to do what we cannot do. And I want to talk a little bit at the end. I'm drawing near to the end now. Sometimes God draws to our attention pressures in our society that we have begun to think of as normal, but in fact are not the way he wants us to be living. You might want to think about some of the pressures that we are under in the UK. What we used to call, I don't know if we do anymore, used to call them prevailing spirits. Things like individualism, consumerism, materialism, busyness, ambition, success, the pressure to have a beautiful family life, to be beautiful, to have the right body, the right friends, pressures that social media have increased, especially for our younger people. There are all these pressures upon us. And you know, sometimes we think it's normal. And really, these verses in Ephesians are saying, no, it isn't. Life in God is different from that. Um, Practices like mindfulness, I think, have become popular as an antidote to many of these pressures. A desire for a different way of living. And I just want to share a, a little story of mine, really, about, I think, recognising, recognising that sometimes we're living a life that isn't the one God intends for us. When I came back from the Middle East about 12 years ago now, where I was working, I came back to live in this country again, where I had lived for my first 30 years, and I was shocked and I was overwhelmed by the relentless pace of life. Busyness seemed to be what dominated everyone's lives and was seen as normal. This is how life is. And I saw it in the church as well. So much busyness, tired people, relentlessness, And at first I found it quite paralysing. I didn't know what to do about it and it overcame me like a wave. And I knew that I had seen and lived a life in the Middle East that was simple and unhurried. And I knew that God was calling me to live that life here where I had time for him and time for people. And really it was quite at odds with the prevailing culture. (coughs) And very simply, one of the most powerful phrases or sentences that God has ever said to me was this, it doesn't have to be this way. I don't think that's even a verse in the Bible. It doesn't have to be this way. 
you can live differently. We do not have to be shaped by the culture around us. And these words for me were the beginning of hope. That God was wanting to lead me and teach me and draw me into a different way. Against the tide. But with his power and his spirit, it could be possible. Because it didn't have to be this way. And I prayed, Lord, help me, because I cannot do this by myself. And you'll know that if you're caught up in a busy life. What do you do? Where do you start? And little by little, as I prayed that, as I asked for God's help, he showed me how and where to make changes. In my work life, For me, it meant cutting it down, taking a smaller salary. In my church life, with friends, with family, when to say no and when to say yes. How to draw aside to spend time with him. How to be fully present with people when I was with them. How to be still. And that was the beginning for me of a journey that I've been on these last 12 years. To live simply with time and space for people and for God. The pressure and the power of busyness is still there. God doesn't magically disappear the pressures. But what he does, he gives us the power to live differently. And for you, it may not be busyness. It may be a different pressure. Um, And we're just going to pause a third time. And again, you might want to close your eyes. And I want to ask you to take a moment to bring to mind what do you find overwhelming about life? What is the main pressure today that you feel under? And it will probably come to your mind very easily. The pressures around us may not change, but we are given the power to resist them and to live differently. You may like to pray very simply, Lord God, help me to see that it doesn't have to be this way. Open my eyes to your way, to your resurrection power. And help me to live differently. I want to conclude with a quote from uh, Eugene Peterson. It's from his book, Practicing Resurrection. And he says this, Jesus' resurrection is the convincing proclamation 
that everything revealed in scripture can be lived by flesh and blood, men and women like us. Not just assented to as true, not just admired as art, but lived in the ordinary conditions of home and workplace, in all kinds of weather and just as Jesus did. We are able to spend our lives doing this because we are saints resurrected from the dead to resurrection life. It's about knowing Jesus better, knowing the hope to which he has called us and living the resurrection life by God's power. Let's just uh, pray. Lord, we've, we've had a lot of words this morning. And I've used a, lo- a lot of words. And Lord God, we simply want to ask you, Holy Spirit, Would you do your work in us this morning? Whatever it is that you are drawing our attention to, whatever it is that you want to speak into our hearts, Lord, we ask you to seal that word in Jesus' name. Amen.